Episode 46, Goldfinger, from 1964, the third James Bond movie in the film franchise. I'm your host, Mike. James Mike. Actually, it's funny because my middle name is James. Anyway, welcome to a very cool secret agent-themed episode. I've been meaning to cover Bond for a long time, and if you listen closely to the show, you may hear some plans for possibly covering even more James Bond movies in the future. First... Joining me today, my unofficial co-host, Brian, high school slumber party iconic Rodriguez, host of the High School Slumber Party podcast. Brian and I just got back from Sicily talking about the godfather Coda. And I am also at the time of this release on his episode of Finding Forrester, which also stars Sean Connery, which influenced my decision to do James Bond this very month. Be sure to listen to that episode also. Next up... My other guest is my official co-host of the Monsters That Made Us podcast. It's the Invisible Dan Cologne. Um, our recent episode of the Monsters That Made Us is out right now, and it is on the Bride of Frankenstein. It's a really good episode that I hope you can find the time to listen to, so thanks in advance. Dan also serves as my Bond consultant today, as we head back to the swinging 60s with the sex spy himself, as Bond heads to Kentucky, of all places, to do more than eat some fried chicken. He's trying to save the world from Goldfinger, a gold-obsessed maniac who loves gold. Gold and will stop at nothing to be considered the greatest criminal mastermind in the world. I really like talking some Bond with these guys and can't wait to tackle more famous mainstream franchises in the very near future. So, without any further ado, grab your Walther PPK, get in your Aston Martin DB5, and grab that brick of Nazi gold, because we're off to the golf course. Times a charm, and to join me in talking about James Bond, I have uh, first up my unofficial co-host Brian, late night high school slumber party Rodriguez. Welcome back to the show. Happy to be here, Mike. As always, I cannot wait to talk Moonraker. It's one of my favorite Bond films. <laughs> <laughs> no, happy to be here. Happy to be here. Absolutely, we're not we're not quite there yet. Uh, thanks for coming back. Also joining me tonight, not an unofficial co-host for this show, but a co-host of mine on another show. Officially. 
Yeah, an official co-host from The Monsters That Made Us, Dan Cologne. Welcome back. Do you expect me to talk, Mike? No, Dan Cologne, I expect you to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on, Mike. And in addition to being um, such a big fan of like monster movies, I'm a huge fan of James Bond, so I'm really excited to, to talk about Goldfinger today. Awesome. Maybe you could be a bit of my Bond consultant for me, even though I as well love this series. One of the earlier franchises, I guess, that just is still going from 1962. Hopefully we'll get a new Bond this year. I know it's in the can, so it just needs to get on the screen. But yeah, I mean, between this and Planet of the Apes, you know, I was set as a teenager. I watched so much James Bond as a kid that it all kind of blurred together at one point. And it wasn't until sort of, um, I guess, around my 20s or college time where I sat down to sort of watch them all and and dissect them properly and, and get to know them a little bit better. And funny enough, just a quick story before I ask you guys about, about your Bond history. Um, this is sort of like a weird connection to Cage Club and how that got started. I was sort of going through certain directions filmographies and stuff. I was watching like all the Godzilla movies in a row. I was watching all the James Bond movies again in a row. And that's when uh, sort of I noticed what Joey was going to be doing with watching all the Nick Cage films. And I reached out to him around that time. And that's around the time Cage Club was formed. So I was like, James Bond was like getting me into this watching the entire series sort of uh, mentality, I guess, which I uh, sort of carry on to this day. But enough about me. Let's start with my unofficial co-host, Brian Rodriguez. Did your uncle hip you to James Bond. I know you've mentioned him before on the show that he was very influential in your childhood and movies and such, but how were you sort of first intro to Bond? Please tell me a little bit about that. Not at all. I have I haven't seen all the Bond films. I have very little Bond experience. I've seen all the Daniel Craig ones and I've seen some of the hits. I've seen this one before, but when I say I'm not a Bond guy, that's not because I dislike Bond. I've never done I never gone from front to back. I was introduced to Bond because I was watching a cartoon as a kid called James Bond Jr. My mom was like, you know, that's based off James Bond, right? And I was like, what's James Bond? This was like 1993, 1992, maybe. So, and then really I started, James Bond came on my radar from watching Austin Powers as a kid. And I, I didn't realize Austin mm. Powers was a parody until like, again, probably my mom, like, you know, that's a parody of James Bond, right? I'm like, oh, okay. And then that's when I started watching some of the older ones and casually. And again, I had known, I, I knew of James Bond at the time, but the James Bond I knew was Pierce Bronson. Goldeneye, playing Goldeneye as a kid, you know, like things like that. That's the Bond I knew, but I didn't know that this Bond, if that makes sense. The Sean Connery I knew was Indiana Jones' dad. So I was kind of shocked when I'm like... <laughs> Junior! <laughs> I was like, oh, this is the same guy who plays James Bond? Like, I came into Bond pretty late. I love the new Bond. I love, you know, Daniel Craig and, you know, Casino Royale. Saw it in theaters. I think I've seen all those in theaters. Um, but yeah, I mean, these casually watched from time to time. I, again, I know I'm missing some. 
But yeah, I'm definitely not going to be your Bond expert today. I guess that's my point. No, totally cool. Yeah, I think that's, you know, like most people, right? I think Bond is a thing that most people have seen a few movies. They're they're fully aware of it. Like you can't not be just like by osmosis, like walking around as a normal, as like a person in society. You're going to eventually know that name and who James Bond is and all that kind of stuff. But it's always interesting to hear like sort of how people get into it. Like you said, with the cartoon, I know a lot of people, uh, it's sort of like, I don't know, it's like a benchmark, that GoldenEye video game, like tons Tons of people I know like got into Bond just like through playing that game. That's how they associate the character and stuff. Funny enough, like before I was really into the movies, like I knew James Bond from Cannonball Run when Roger Moore showed up as like a parody of himself, you know? So that's what I mean is like it was all around the culture. Dan Cologne, how about yourself? Were you watching James Bond while you were a young tyke watching uh, Frankenstein as well? Or when were you sort of first introduced? Yeah, so like a lot of your other friends, I kind of discovered James Bond through GoldenEye for the Nintendo 64. You know, I mean, that game was huge. Whether you like James Bond or not, that game was so popular, it sort of transcended the property, right? So I got really into that. I got to, to watch the movie GoldenEye uh, at a pretty young age, like right around that time. And I just, I, I loved it. And uh, at the time, I, would, I was spending weekends with my grandparents. You know, my parents around that time were in a bowling league on Friday nights. So I'd go over to my grandparents' house and I'd spend Friday nights night there and I usually spend Saturday night there and in the 90s as was popular we would go to the blockbuster and rent movies you know and as my interest in James Bond was developing I remember renting Dr. No my grandmother rented me Dr. No and um, I'm pretty sure she rented me Live and Let Die and uh, you know so I saw a handful of Bond as a kid in, in hindsight I'm not so sure that was such a great parenting decision well this is a PG film so you know <laughs> That's true. You know, I mean, that's really where the genesis for my love of James Bond begins. And then I kind of slept on Bond for a little while. And then in college, when the when the Daniel Craig movies started coming out, I got back into Bond. You know, I got really invested in the property again. I started reading some of the books while I was in college. I should say I haven't read all of the books. I have a great number of them, and I keep meaning to, like, commit to the series and, and, and actually read all of them. But yeah, that's kind of when that started up again. And just recently, I would say within the past few years, I really committed to these movies. And I, I got a great deal on the collection on Blu-ray. And I spent just over a month watching all 24 of them. And, uh, you know, I was filling in gaps that I wasn't aware I had and remembering, oh, that's right, this moment happens in this movie. Kind of getting a, a, a full picture of the franchise as a whole. And ever since then, I've just kind of stayed on that wagon, you know? Like, I love Bond uh, more than I ever have now. I find myself just putting these movies on as, like, comfort movies. It's safe to say at this point in my life, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan. Cool. Yeah, I remember, um, I think, you know, every couple of years, I guess every time they sort of switched to Bond, like my interest would peak. When I was a kid, Timothy Dalton was my Bond. I, th I think it's kind of a, a misconception that your favorite Bond's the one you grew up with. But like, in my case, he is my favorite Bond. I think he's got the best and the worst movie. I think there's something to be said about that. Uh, Living Daylights is just spectacular. License to Kill is just kind of cringy, in my opinion. But definitely Casino Royale, like, re-sparked, like, my entire interest in Bond to sort of trace the history, learn the mythology a lot better yeah get my movie straight oh something else i'm also trying to maybe plan on doing is like every third movie by every different bond i mean unfortunately timothy dalton had only done two and we got george lazenby with the one so quick question here before we get into goldfinger have you guys ever seen never say never again by any chance are you aware of what this james bond movie is also starring sir sean connery 
Mike, yeah, I have not seen it, but I am very aware of it. It also technically qualifies as a tangential Coppola film, and you know we love those, but leave it at that. I've seen Never Say Never Again years ago. I think it ran on HBO quite a bit when I was younger. Maybe not HBO, but it was certainly on TV quite a few times. And so I remember pieces of it, but um, as it is not part of the Eon Productions official canon, it's been a long time since I've actively sought it out. So I've been meaning to, I'm just not in a hurry, but uh, yeah, I have seen it. Yeah, it's basically a remake of Thunderball. That's basically like its big claim to fame, I think. And uh, it's kind of a better remake, I think. It was uh, uh, Irving Kirshner might have directed that one, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Irving Kirshner and then Jack Schwartzman is the lead producer there. That's why I said it was related to the uh, Coppola universe, because, of course, Jack Schwartzman, Talia Shire's husband and B-movie producer extraordinaire. Yeah, so it would be cool if Jason Schwartzman was a Bond villain one day. I could, <laughs> I could see, see that. that yeah. Another kind of cool connection is, like, uh, Dan, you mentioned Indiana Jones, I believe, or someone, I mean, Indiana Jones came up in this conversation uh, based somewhat on James Bond. You know, uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg always talked about how they wanted to direct a James Bond movie and they were like let's just create our own series and uh, sort of James Bond but like you know in the 40s doing archaeological stuff and you know I guess a little less highbrow spy type thing going on there but it's just great that Sean Connery who started off as Bond in the series ended up playing Indiana Jones father so there's just like this great kind of connection there going on with everything yeah I mean uh, there's a lot of connections the dude who plays Salah is in one of the Bond films right I forgot which one. I think one of the Timothy Daltons. I think you're right. Jonathan Riz davies Yeah. I could have sworn I saw him there once. That's all. <laughs> yes, he is in The Living Daylights. So Sean Connery, including the non-official, non-canon movie, is tied with Roger Moore, I believe, for seven films. Uh, Guy Hamilton, the director of this movie, this is the first of four James Bonds that he's going to direct. So, yeah, let's get into Goldfinger, though. Not the ska band, but the actual movie. Uh, I'll do a quick plot summary. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny watching this now. It's way more straightforward than I remember. I remember as, like, a a kid or a teen sort of expecting it to be more sort of complex, I guess. That's the thing, right? Like, I, as, as big a fan as I am, a lot of these movies are so convoluted, I find it very difficult to really fully understand what these these villains plots are i haven't watched goldfinger out of context uh you know by itself in quite a while and i was watching i was like i don't remember it being so straightforward like this plot is not at all difficult to understand why did i think it was maybe i was just lumping it in with all of the other you know movies over time well that's the thing then there's a definitely a distinct formula to these movies that they're going to adopt for a long time and i think they really kind of nail it with goldfinger i mean i know dr no they were kind of they had no idea what they were really doing they were all you know just kind of testing the waters from russia with love is kind of a quite serious james bond i'd say in this one they're really sort of balancing it a little more with a bit of the humor a little more of a wink to the audience and that kind of stuff so uh we also get like all of the very kind of classic moments that have to fill up a bond movie you know so like i always find that interesting is like you're always going to have your md briefing you're always going to have your q session you're always going to have you know the money penny flirting and it's like once you get past writing all that you're you already got 40 minutes of a movie it's like <laughs> fill in the blanks sort of time I, you know as i was re-watching you know i realized that as a spy movie james bond kind of sucks as a spy in this right he spends <laughs> about an hour of the movie more than half the runtime as a prisoner of goldfinger right and and none just of, watching and, yeah. and nothing he does is relevant to the resolution of this movie but 
this movie is so good at incorporating all of these things that became series hallmarks. And it's not self-aware enough yet that it becomes self-parody, right? It'll become that later. And I think that's why this movie stands out as such a favorite, is that it's not winking at the audience yet. Like, all of these things still feel fresh and new, even though the formula has been replicated over and over and over in the years since. Yeah, I, d I definitely agree with that. And I also agree going back to watch this for the first time in a while, and in at least like five or six years, and that it didn't feel tiresome. Like, all those things still felt like, oh, this is uh, not so much new and original to me, but like, it feels fresh as they're doing it in the film right. you can tell this is sort of new right. at the time and I like that it that it still had that feeling to it I'm just going to give some of the brief sort of overview as to what's going on in this movie basically James Bond is asked by British intelligence to keep an eye on this guy named Goldfinger who has a lot of gold deposits like personal gold like sort of stashed around the world and the English bank and the World Bank I would imagine they come to Bond and they're like hey you know we want to make sure this guy's on the up and up do you mind like keeping an eye on him here's a brick of gold go play golf see what you could learn figure out his motives see if he's uh up to anything illegal basically so bond does that and sure enough goldfinger is up to a lot of illegal shit he's um trafficking gold smuggling it around the world he's turning it into cars kind of reminded me of cheech and chong when they made the weed truck to cross the border <laughs> there's a parallel <laughs> i never would have anticipated <laughs> hey man, it's a solid gold car. Hey, imagine a, a car made out of weed, man. <laughs> oh, it's in the movie. <laughs> anyway, you're not just getting Sean Connery impressions. <laughs> like you guys said, Bond is basically caught. Like Goldfinger has it out for him. Bond fucks with his game. Uh, they're at like the country club, and he steals his girlfriend. Then his girlfriend's sister gets mixed up in an assassination attempt, and she's also killed. Bond eventually falls into the care of Pussy Galore. What? What did you just say? Pussy... Oh, I'm sorry. Pussy Galore. Okay, that makes it better. She is sort of one of two henchmen for Goldfinger, the other one being the mute odd job with, with the hat and the very iconic, he throws the hat and you die. Um, very cool. Bond learns about Goldfinger's plan, which isn't to rob Fort Knox, but he's going to set off a dirty bomb inside of the vault and make the gold basically useless. No one, it's going to be radioactive, and then all of his gold is going to skyrocket in value and go through the roof. And, and as he said, he'll be known as the greatest criminal in the world. And all that kind of stuff. Very megalomaniac. In the end, Bond and his U.S. connections, headed up by Felix Leiter and U.S. intelligence, Bond tells them of Goldfinger's plan, Operation Grand Slam. Here was a big twist, too, that uh, Bond sleeps with Pushy Galore. Basically, she switches sides and um, helps Bond take down Goldfinger, but Goldfinger gets away at the very end, and there's sort of a coda where they're on an airplane, and he tries to hijack it but he shoots through the fuselage and Goldfinger is sucked out of a window and he falls to his death while Bond and Pussy Galore, they land safely in the woods and make out while credits roll. <laughs> okay. By the way, that thing about, it comes up twice in the movie, the thing about they're in the airplane and he's like, you don't want to shoot uh, a hole in the airplane because it'll depressurize the cabin. I think that was myth busted on a couple episodes of Mythbusters and uh, they eventually figured out, I don't remember, but I think they did an episode where they're like, what would it take to depressurize the cabin? Good to know. All right, Goldfinger. The first Bond movie I saw in its entirety, for sure. I think it held up really well. I was very pleased watching this film. First impressions, Brian. For me, um, you hit on a lot of them already, but this is... If I want to just show someone what a Bond film is, like what a Sean Connery Bond film is like, 
this is a great one to show them because it really, you know, you're getting the Aston Martin and the gadgets and so many Bond girls, so many Bond girls. I really, really enjoyed it watching it kind of out of context like this. I don't know why, but I was along for this ride. They're in Jamaica, place the Bond franchise revisits a lot. Uh, they're in Miami at the Fountain Blue. Love seeing that. Oh my God. I'm a huge fan of Cabana gear. Love when James Bond is in Cabana gear. Oh, Brian, I have already spoken to my girlfriend about making me one of those terry cloth rompers. <laughs> Tell her to start an Etsy. She's got customers. She, she does make clothing, and I was like, the, the one piece of custom clothing I want is a powder blue terry cloth romper from Goldfinger. Ooh. And she's like, yeah, we could make that work. So, uh, yeah, nice. I'll, I'll let you guys know if she can make more. But Brian, I mean, you you nailed it. Like one thing I didn't mention, these movies are travelogued. You know, these are for people who can't go to those places in real life and live that lifestyle and stuff. Jet Set, too. Yeah, Jet Setting. This is a Jet Set Age, a movie of the Jet Set Age about a jet setting spy. It's awesome. Yeah, you know, he goes to Geneva and then Kentucky, but you know. That's where Fort Knox was. So. <laughs> I actually really like that Bond spends a ton of time in the United States in this. I mean, I, I kind of like when he's in a, he's when he's in the United States at all ever like across the series. You know, he spends quite a bit of time here. Yeah, it's quite uncommon actually. And later on in the movies, the the Broccoli's sort of like don't paint America in the brightest light. Like he gets another partner for a while. I can't remember his name, but he has another sort of secret agent that helps him out. That isn't Felix Leiter, played by Joe Dom Baker, That's I right. believe, at one point. Right? He like married into the Broccoli family. But like the guy's a bumpkin, you know. Like there's a lot of those kind of characters. There is there is a sheriff that reappears once or twice when they do the Mick twist off of the bridge in yes. one of those movies and everything <laughs> they kind of get down on america for a while so it was kind of nice to see them actually just be like oh we're allies and stuff and felix Leiter like doing his thing i know we see miami but miami's exotic right i liked seeing kentucky here because the way they treated kentucky was almost like it was exotic too kentucky derby so he's got a horse stable there right like they're drinking kentucky bourbon and things like and mint juleps and of course fort knox happens to be there so kentucky fried chicken <laughs> i was gonna say that is the only thing about kentucky in this movie that doesn't really feel exotic exactly yeah it kind of threw my thing off there but, <laughs> but it does exist well product product placement yeah i guess they had to i guess they had to but yeah i mean i, I liked again that side of kentucky not that i approve of plantations obviously but that where he lives right he's on like a almost a southern looking plantation so they'll find ways to make everything sexy in these movies yeah and and especially the architecture so i'm a big nerd about like bond villain lairs i think goldfinger's kentucky lair if you want to use that word the set design for that particular space is just so beautiful to me the mixture of wood and steel and stone all come together to create this just absolutely gorgeous set and that's one of the things that I love about Bond in general, from the volcano lairs to Goldfinger's farm to, I think that, especially the, the 60s Bond, just did an incredible job of designing these these spaces that the actors can inhabit, you know? Absolutely. And like, they definitely, this is another, you know, something that's definitely going to be a trope and, and somewhat maybe forced into other movies somewhere along the line. But like, they get so much more elaborate, like you say, like not just the lairs, but the villains, like Blofeld will have his volcano, um, like someone's going to be setting up shop under the sea you know another guy is going to be in space like they really go um kind of as far as they can with this down the line which is which is terrific but 
Yeah, it's so good. So good. How about the opener? Like another another thing before we even get to the titles in the song, we have like these little preludes to movies, which I love where he's sort of on um, the mission before the mission, right? Like he's wrapping something up before he gets to the movie story. Right, but this is actually the first cold open where, or like one of the few really, where the, the cold open uh, is sort of connected to the main story in that it puts Bond in Miami. Most of the time, it's just a random mission where, you know, he he has a, a quippy one-liner and maybe like a, a gunfight or some skiing or whatever, and then credits and then the movie starts, right? This opener serves to put Bond in Florida after the credits. So I, th- I find that kind of interesting. Yeah, that, w- that was pretty cool. I thought it had the perfect balance. Like it starts with the duck gag, right? right? Like that's a cool joke. And the, the him stripping out of the, the scuba gear into a tuxedo, right? True lies. You mentioned Mythbusters, Mike, and they tested that as well. And I think they confirmed that if you were wearing a dry suit, not a wetsuit, you could, in theory, wear a full tuxedo underneath and then like pop up out of the water, strip out and be ready to go. I guess we get the first Bond girl of the movie who, and in each movie, there's usually one that's on uh, the bad guy's side. It's all to sort of disarm him because she's got an assassin coming and, you know, hopefully he's tired enough after their coitus um, to (laughs) not stop the guy. But it's no, he's like, he's, I love the moment where he sees the dudes reflected in her eye. That's a very graphic image from like, um, like a, um, like a comic book or something like that, you know, like that's a panel, you know, like I feel like that's a drawing or something like that. It's so cool to see that like kind of come to life. Any highlight moments for you guys in the opening? I love these. You know, I love the, cl- what's the lady who sings the songs again and stuff? Shirley Bassey. Shirley Bassey. Yeah. You know, when it, how it, they just go to that. I'm just waiting for it. When I, when I see these cold opens, I'm waiting for it to happen and then waiting to jump to that classic openings. Well, he even like electrocutes the guy and gives a one-liner. Oh, the one-liners. Oof. Like, is this where those kind of caught on into action movies where maybe James Bond would say something quippy after killing some dude? Oh, I'm sure. Right? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what action movies predate this. I mean, I'm no expert on that, but I would have to believe that, yeah, that, that the quippy one-liners in action movies originated with James Bond, for sure. Uh, and then, Brian, you mentioned the song, and with the song comes the titles. And this is another thing that is just, like, bled into other films and other parody and all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, I've seen just, like, this everywhere since James Bond. Where do you guys feel this ranks on your scale of songs and openings? I don't know them enough to really give a ranking. I thought it was awesome, but I could be wrong, you know. I love how literal these so- the songs are sometimes in like these early ones. Where whoever writes the lyrics, oh, it always makes me chuckle. Just yeah, and, and I, I love Shirley Bassey. Uh, any Bond fan who tells you they don't love Shirley Bassey is lying. This song is maybe the best of the classic James Bond songs. Uh, I don't know that it's my number one, but certainly would rank very high on my list. And I love the credits. Now, I, I assumed that it was Maurice Binder who designed the titles for this, but I was incorrect. Since learned it was Robert Brownjohn who designed them. Now, Maurice Binder did the titles for most of the classic Bond films. Uh, this is one of those rare instances where he didn't. But I love the concept of projecting actual footage from the movie onto these models. Like, it just it's so striking. Um, we don't know what these images mean yet we know they're kind of exciting or goldfinger looks way more nefarious you know when he's projected onto uh, a human body than i think he ever does in the movie itself this theme song with the opening titles is like a perfect marriage creatively of just all the different elements 
I really like the music, and I like how the music plays with the James Bond theme. Like, I think that's really clever. I think they might have lost a bit of that in sort of uh, subsequent films and stuff, where, like, they use, like, the sort of same orchestration at a time, you know? It goes into, like, the dun, 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 like, that part of it. Not, like, the dun, 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 dun part, but, like, the other part and stuff. And, like, if you listen throughout the movie, it does that also throughout the movie. Like, the Goldfinger theme will sort of blend together with the James Bond theme and, and I just love that motif and I love when any movie really does that um, as far as like the titles like I didn't even really consider how cool that was that they were just sort of projecting scenes of the movie onto the people like that and that's going to be a big thing I feel like in films is showing especially in, in like since this is a third in a franchise kind of thing and I know they're not showing clips from previous films but it is sort of a thing where it's like they're doing in Mission Impossible where they, the opening critics are comprised of big moments in the movie and I and I've seen that in other films also and stuff so like that's an interesting thing that's crossed over uh into sort of the art of opening title and closing title creation i guess yeah i think there's something to the the synergy you're referring to between this movie theme and the regular james bond theme and the rest of the score of this film all of that music was composed by john barry so it's not like today where you have a theme that is entirely composed by somebody else you know other than who's composed whoever's composing the score in these days john barry composed just about all of the music for the films which is why everything kind of fits together so neatly i think awesome yeah i definitely think that that helps so you know this movie is pretty great like almost every scene has like something to talk about i guess but like i don't want to just kind of go through it like beat by beat do you guys want to just sort of talk about our our favorite moments highlight some of the best parts maybe get into the bad parts as well from here and there but brian for instance do you have like a a favorite part of this movie is there something about it that's just like your favorite thing about bond that he does or or something about one of the supporting characters or anything in general my favorite part is when he shoes a woman away and says man talk and smacks her in the ass (laughs) (laughs) i'm joking But we were going to save that for later, but okay. <laughs> that did not age well. It's funny, I was thinking about that with this particular movie. I think a lot of the sort of Bond is sexist, the misogyny thing, and all that kind of stuff. Like, it's valid, of course. I'm not trying to dodge any of that kind of thing. But there was such a weird vibe with this movie in particular that they all knew that this was sort of kind of a joke like it felt so much more like a like a fantasy or something like that like and and it also almost explains like bond just standing around for the second half of the movie being caught it's like yeah i'm caught whatever like who cares like it's not like they're gonna kill me like they're just keeping me alive to save the day it just felt like there was a bit more irony involved in this movie than later films or things like that where they really lean into him uh, using sex as a weapon or something i don't know but that's you know that's just my take off he definitely used sex as a weapon a lot so i if that's true i agree with you well the idea originally i think and you know i i just kind of i don't think i read this this is just something i heard on another podcast was the character of pussy galore originally is supposed to be gay and he sleeps with her in this movie and converts her to sort of being a straight woman i guess for a while or at least like (laughs) enough to help him out and kind of like give up Goldfinger at one point. Yeah, it's it's not great. Uh, no one's saying it is, but let's sort of focus on the positives while we're here instead. I did have a question. I was reading, so like, that's not Goldfinger's voice? It was dubbed? Is that what I read correctly? That's correct. The actor, Gert Frobe, who played Oric Goldfinger, he, he had such a thick German accent that it was difficult, you know, to really understand what he was saying. So he said his lines phonetically, and then his lines were redubbed later in post. 
That's crazy. I had no idea. (laughs) You know why I had no idea? Because a lot of this filmmaking seems kind of choppy. I don't exactly know how else to explain it, but like there's a lot of that rear screen projection, which as a kid, I thought that's just how it looked shooting through a car with a camera. I was like, oh, it just makes it look weird like that. Lots of like over cranking and stuff and like weird wonky kind of effects and things and jumps and stuff. And so like I almost wondered if that was just a byproduct of all of that that was happening, you know, with the uh, with the production and stuff. It has always struck me as weird that in the in the Miami scene uh, towards the beginning that the crew was clearly in Miami. The actor who plays Felix was in Miami. They had access to Florida, but all of the scenes with Sean Connery are done with uh, rear projection or they're done on a set. I've always been wondering why, and it turns out he was shooting Marnie uh, when they were in Florida. So when they came to shoot his, you know, his scenes for that, they had to do everything on a set or with rear projection. So it's just strange to see a single scene like that cut up in such a way. Um, I don't know that it's entirely, uh, that it entirely works, but you know, I, I guess I forgive it. That's almost like a modern sensibility of digital filmmaking, right? <laughs> it's like, just put a green screen behind them and prop up, you know, the blank plate of wherever we were shooting. I also noticed that later on in the movie, Dan, and it's even weirder because there's another scene where Felix Leiter and it's like they were clearly, there's a shot of him like running in and out of that Kentucky Fried Chicken. But then there's another shot of him and it's a rear screen projection of Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> behind him. So I was like, did they like write pickup shots? And they were like, shit, like we're back in London. We need the shot this and that like we have to cobble it together like we already did it with that scene in Miami I guess that's our thing now I don't know if you guys noticed that either I I didn't but I will be looking for it uh, with subsequent viewings same um but none of that bothers me you know like that's all like sort of in the spirit I think part of that is growing up through the ages of kind of like I guess you call it analog filmmaking at this point right where it's all done in camera or by specialists um, in a lab because like ILM was like a lab you know like it wasn't your office space or anything like that at the time I find it very charming not because it's Bond either but just because of the spirit of filmmaking and stuff and it's like oh you could see the seams and it doesn't matter to me yeah, I mean, I, I found that so interesting and, and nostalgic. Not that I'm nostalgic for this time. I obviously wasn't alive, but it's exactly what I wanted in a, in a Sean Connery Bond film. I, I was totally cool with it. This is comes with the territory. So at this point, I, I, I've got no real qualms. You know, it's just, it's what it is. Uh, Dan, did you have a favorite part of the film? I don't know that I have a favorite scene. Uh, I like a lot of the um, the more famous moments. You know, obviously the, the laser sequence is, is incredible. I think, I think what I love most about this film film is like just the overall style from Connery's wardrobe to the car to the set design. Like if I could go back in time and live in like any period in in, in history, like this is kind of where I'd want to be. Hey, let me ask you this real quick, uh, because you're touching on what I love about what rewatching these movies, which is basically like the, the production uh, style, like the, the whole Maison scene, like the whole world of Bond, basically. What would you guys think if they made a James Bond today that took place back then in the 60s like call it james bond like 1964 or something like that and we do a period piece like that's where my mind was going watching this entire thing it's gonna happen what, what you just said is going to happen so thank you for putting that in the universe mike uh, i mean I, I think it's cool i think it's a cool idea i love period pieces but look at again wonder woman 1984 or whatever people love doing that kind of stuff and i think it could be really really cool you know if done right if done right yeah and, and i mean my favorite bond film 
of all of them is Skyfall. And one of the things I like most about that movie is that it deals with this idea that a character like James Bond is this relic from the Cold War. How necessary is somebody like this? Is this uh, an obsolete kind of government agency? Yeah, when you have uh, J- when you have Jason Bourne running around out there. The movie definitely, because, you know, it's a James Bond movie, it makes the argument that, yes, this stuff is still necessary. But as as times change and technology advances and and so on and so forth, you know, the idea that this sort of thing might not be necessary, I think that means that there's only so much time left for a modern day James Bond. And, and eventually, I don't know how long it could be. It could be a couple years. It could be 10 years, 20 years, who knows? But the time will come where, okay, now this is really just an antiquated idea for real. And there's only one place left to go. And that's going to be the 60s, 70s, and so on. So I think it's, it's inevitable. Like Brian said, like, it's not a question of if, but when. I would love to see something like that. I think that Daniel Craig is doing an, an amazing job as a 21st century James Bond. But now I'm thinking about the longevity of spycraft in the 21st century, right? It's we have drones now. Well, that, yeah, and we live in the world of Fast Nine. Like, I mean, and I love this. I love that we do, but it's just like everyone in you know when you watch those Fast and Furious movies now, and this is just a broad example because it's done in all the movies. Like, everyone's a James Bond or whatever, you know. Like, there's this. Everybody's got their own secret spy organizations fighting in the shadows nowadays. Okay, and so it's like he's not even standing out being um, a one-man army. You know, I, I briefly mentioned um, Jason Bourne. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's out there, and you know, he's a gorilla. In field you know what i'm saying it's not about being tactical so much as it is just getting uh the job done and and leaving a message or something and then you know like on the other hand the stuff that i really am gravitating towards is sort of the christopher nolan stuff that he's doing where it's almost like sci-fi future bond with like stuff like inception and tenet like i almost approach those movies as his version of what they wouldn't let him do with a james bond film right is like my secret agent travels back in time you know or like my secret agent like enters your dreams and shit and like i love that stuff as well so i think you're right dan you know like people being influenced by this series their entire lives becoming filmmakers are taking it to other levels in their own work and i think for bond to survive you know the day may come where it's like better off in the past like yeah let's sort of not reset it but like let's tell some of those earlier adventures or something or i don't know i think that would be a good way to go with the series yeah i mean i hope it's not true but i suspect that both austin powers and jason bourne are sort of the beginning of the end of James Bond as a modern day character. The series can only go goofy so far as they don't become Austin Powers goofy. And Jason Bourne created this whole new brand of, of action movies that now James Bond is aping instead of, instead of being the ones on the forefront of, of how to make these sorts of movies, they're copying what other people are doing. So, you know what I mean? Like stylistically, I think they need to find a new way to go so that they can forge a new path, keep the character fresh. Um, going back might be the way to go. I'm not sure. You know, I always thought that that's something they should have done with with a character like Superman is uh, say his adventures, make those period pieces that take place in like the 50s and 60s when he was possibly, you know, maybe more, I don't want to say more relevant, but like maybe more relevant. And the same with something like the Fantastic Four, you know, a lot of people sort of say like they're a little too wholesome for the modern day or whatever like that. And it's like, okay, great. Like have their story take place in the 60s then when that comic came out and make it more about those values and then shoot them forward in time and have them have to be fish out water in the modern day like almost like captain america or something i i will tell you this much like i'm very much looking forward to no time to die like i will keep following this series really wherever it goes 
But see, even with No Time to Die, I already see the beginnings of them hearkening back to the days of old. I mean, with the, the font of the title, it's like that, that love boat font. And that's that's one of the things I love most about No Time to Die from what I've seen of it is that just that by itself, I was like, oh, man, they're going like old school with the logo, you know, and I'm hoping that the movie will draw from old stuff. I mean, that's one of the things I like most about Skyfall is that it really, really draws from the, the legacy of this character in the franchise down to having the DB5, the old DB5 is in there. There's like some Roger Moore moments, you know, like so much of it feels like an old James Bond movie. So I, I, I see that. I'm sort of leaning in that direction without fully committing but you know as long as there are brand new omega watches and nokia phones or, or whatever you know like they're gonna keep trying to sell you know new tech so who knows yeah it's interesting too because this is purportedly the last daniel craig so they're gonna have to start again with another uh, actor in the role of bond all those things you were mentioning though dan is seems to be what people didn't like about specter but what i kind of loved about specter was like we're really gonna sort of kind of make this a connected kind of universe and and make it more like the old days with the round table of the evil villain society and all this kind of thing and like they really sort of felt like it poured on the nostalgia maybe too hard i mean even reenacting scenes from on her majesty's secret service basically half of that yeah. movie is like her majesty's secret service which is kind of funny and also not at the same time. I mean, that's part of Bond's entire history. It's a very tough balancing act, and they always have to sort of uh, cater to the era. Yeah, and that's the stuff I loved about Spectre. The only thing I really didn't care for about Spectre is that it they, they felt the need to connect the previous movies, you know? Just let it be a Blofeld movie. You don't have to tie it into the rest. Everything's a long-form story with, like, five parts, you know? Like, just let him have a solo adventure and Blofeld's the bad guy. No, everything else in that movie I thought was fantastic. You know, I think, I just, I think the connection to the previous movies really hindered the potential of that movie. For sure. I mean, I, I agree with all that. Can I tell you, Mike, though, my favorite moments of Goldfinger? Because while you guys were getting into the Bond nitty gritty, I was like trying to trying to figure them out. So here goes. First is, and I don't remember the character's name, but the first sister. There's two sisters who die in this. Jill. Tragic for those parents, by the way. <laughs> right? Jill and Tilly. Yeah. <laughs> the Jill stuff and just Bond's like suaveness there. He has that line about the Beatles, which I loved. Oh, that's the best. Yes. I wanted to remark on that. He is not a Beatles fan <laughs> no. by any means, right? <laughs> no. And, and just, I, I think it's such an iconic moment where she's painted in gold like that. Yeah. I like that, but the way I remembered it was that she was encased in gold. I, I didn't remember the line where he said gold paint. You know, I didn't remember the gold paint line. So I was like, oh, I thought they like dipped her oh. in gold and shit. So. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint then. I guess it's not a favorite moment. No, you didn't disappoint. No, no, it's still an awesome moment. It's iconic, yeah. So another scene that I think is just so wacky, but I love it, is the golfing scene between Goldfinger and Bond and Odd Job, uh, who I don't think we've mentioned yet. Odd Job, classic, right? But he's the caddy, and then there's Bond has this caddy who, who I don't know, but uh, yeah. So golfing scene. I'm curious what you guys think of this scene. Well, isn't golf? Wasn't that originally originated in Scotland, if I'm not mistaken? It's a Scottish origin. So maybe that was like a Sean Connery thing where they were like, hey, we've got Sean Connery, right? He's uh, representing 
Great Britain, but like we've also got to sort of represent his heritage too in a way. And I thought Goff was good because like especially then, I mean even now, but especially then, that's when like people did big business was out on the golf course and shit and like doctors were always golfing, you know, in the 80s and 90s, <laughs> like just executives out on the golf course making huge deals and shit. So I thought like on a couple levels like it worked really and well. And how he's toying with the villain, like that's something you don't really see so much in action films. So this level so so Dan, this comes up once or twice in the monsters that made us. This is like Van Helsing meeting Dracula. That's right. And they know who each other are, but they're not giving up like their secrets or anything like that. And they're just sort of like testing each other and, and like poking the bear and stuff. I love that stuff. He plays 18 holes with him. It's amazing. <laughs> This is a beautiful moment because, yeah, because Goldfinger says, uh, or I think pretty early in the golf game, you know, you didn't come here to play golf. What's your game? He doesn't know that James is a spy yet, or maybe he does. No, he just, he knows that he fucked up his pinochle game, right? And took his girlfriend and then slept with her because they That's killed right. her. And not an odd job, like, knocks him out and they kill her and he wakes up and it's like a message. It's like, stay the fuck away from me. I'll kill all the girls you sleep right. with. Right. So yeah, he doesn't he doesn't know specifically what he's after, but he knows Bond is not who he appears to be. And I, I do love that. And I think this scene is maybe Bond's best seen as a spy i mean he like i said previously he spends about an hour of this movie as you know a prisoner and is basically useless as a spy but he does get to have this this scene where he gets to be really clever and outsmart the villain and and i love his relationship with the caddy you know like they both understand what they're doing and like oh man we're gonna get him so yeah i i, I love this scene because i think it plays to connery's strengths you know definitely uh that he, you know his his sort of charming personality without having to be a big action scene you know like this is him just kind of getting to live and be bond for you know a little while love it love it like i could watch the scene over and over again just the cheating on top of cheating you know what i mean like oh but your honor you're don't worry about it you know like, yeah. <laughs> strict rules goldfinger <laughs> like we almost get to enjoy what's happening as much as he is you know like that's i think yeah. that's what i love most about that scene and then the third thing just one of my favorite moments or things about the film that i really loved from the first watch to this watch is it has to be pussy galore's flying circus right like just these these lady pilots who again I love her. I love Pussy Galore. Like, she's she's this pilot, right? I know she's in the service of a bad guy, but remember, she changes heart. She runs this, like, all-lady pilots thing, and I don't know. I'm for it. Yeah, here's what I love about that. Um, well, first of all, like, you know, she's running her own business, right? And she's a hench for hire. Like, she's not, like, odd job. She's not a bodyguard. Like, Goldfinger hired her because she's going to spray the toxin and knock out the guards over Fort Knox and they're like precision flyers and all that kind of thing. But what I love is that this movie is really giving me like, again, like this Batman vibe, Batman 66, though, like the uh, TV mm. series where like you'll see later, like, you know, like the henchmen come back a lot, but like you rarely see like a team coordinated of like evil people like she's like the like quote-unquote Catwoman say and then like what if Catwoman had a gang of like associates that all dressed up like cats also and like rob stuff with her or something you know like I just think it's really cool how she's like a gang or something mm -hmm. like that I don't know is that is that making sense is that kind of coming across makes sense to me I think it's really cool yeah, for, for all of the, um, like, I mean, misogyny is rampant across this entire franchise, right? We kind of have to watch these movies with our tongue in our cheek um, and acknowledge all, all of this shit is, is wrong, right? But what I find interesting is that 
There are a handful of these female characters who, if not for Bond being the main character that the writers have to give these moments, you know, would otherwise be kind of feminist icons, dare I say. I want the Tilly movie. Like, what the fuck was she doing her, you know, getting revenge for Jill, like tracking down Goldfinger and shit like that must have been crazy. Right. These characters, you know, at the beginning, you know, we who when we meet them are like these incredible, powerful female characters with legitimate agency. And like all of that work is just completely undone because Bond sleeps with all of them. I think of Pussy Galore as one of those high water marks for female uh, characters. I also think of Maude Adams and Octopussy. I mean, she's a, a, a woman who has her own criminal enterprise, you know, like in any other movie, she'd be like this incredible boss bitch but you know she's um in a bond film so she's always gonna kind of like all of that is gonna be undercut uh, eventually unfortunately but yeah I, I love pussy galore in this and in her flying circus she's just incredible honor blackman is just great so good and uh, uh dan you, you made me laugh because what's what's the line he says that like really undoes all that positive feminism oh he's like oh i think i i must have appealed to her maternal instincts that's why she turned I'm like, right oh, come on <laughs> yeah yeah that's the thing is like unfortunately like the term bond girl will will saddle all these actresses unfortunately down the line and and you know there was a time i remember growing up where like people would play into it too so it was not always great but behind all that there was always like a stronger character sort of in the shadows or even up front that was not getting the publicity i mean i think halle berry was a cool example of trying to do both at once and the whole jinx idea of maybe spinning that off into a series i really love what michelle yo ended up doing when she came on into the into the franchise for her movie and stuff so like definitely uh down the line like a lot of this stuff was also happening yeah i think that i think the single best example like maybe the only one who gets through unscathed from a lot of this criticism is diana rigg in on her majesty's secret service her father is completely gross you know and talks about her how her daughter needs to be married and dominated so she'll behave you know like it's disgusting but you know she's rejecting all of that she's rebellious she saves james bond at one point she's like the number one bond girl in, in my opinion because for, like for all those reasons you know her character doesn't change because she's in love with bond you know what i mean she's still this super powerful woman in, in, in an otherwise male-dominant action film. Oh, yeah, and then look what, unfortunately, what they, they had to do with her. Right. R.I.P. Teresa Bond, unfortunately. They're like, we can't be having this in every movie. So sad. So I think this movie has a really cool plan from the villain. Like, I remembered as soon as he said Grand Slam, I was like, oh, right, Fort Knox. Like, and not only that, like, he's not going to rob it. He's, I don't know if this is a thing either. Like, can you just make gold radioactive and then is it really worthless? Like, I have a feeling you could, it would like, I mean, I know they say the 50 years until it's clean again, but I think, I don't know, that might have to go to the Mythbusters also. However, like for a comic book plot or whatever, I think that's a great idea. And that is very sort of like Lex Luthory, very smart sort of criminal mastermind kind of stuff. Let's just say you could uh, do that, and uh, 57 years is not that long in the grand scheme of things. Not all the gold is not in Fort Knox, to be clear. Right, some of it's in Manhattan, we learned from Die Hard 3. Yes, yes, Mike. Another, another episode we talked about here. However, that's not American gold. That's foreign gold. Remember that. We're keeping it for foreign nations there, according to the lore of that. 
West Point has like 20% of the gold, and it's kind of spread out. Fort Knox has the most, but theoretically, I think the bigger deal would be, he mentions that I believe, it's more of the destabilizing factor of it. Not so much the actual thing, the fact that someone got to Fort Knox, and the markets would just go insane thinking that that could happen, just the idea of that. So I think that would affect it more than the literal gold becoming radioactive. That's a good point, right? Like it was, yeah. It's more about like the statement than what he, than whatever he actually accomplished with the deed. And it's like it's the shockwaves that he'll send throughout the system and everything. Even more clever than I remembered. I like that. Some people just want to watch the world burn, Mike. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like Goldfinger wants to erect big gold statues of himself afterwards when the dust settles and the oh, smoke definitely. clears. I really love the car. You know, that is just a dream come true. I think they show it off really well in the chase sequence when he's like escaping the factory or whatever, but then he also like has to turn back and <laughs> they catch him with the mirror trick and he crashes into the wall. I was like, oh, I don't remember that. that. That was a little weak, taking him out with a mirror and everything. But I really love the, uh, the car, the the ejector seat is just classic. I mean, again, they ended up doing that in, in uh, Fast and Furious 2. Ejector seats. Just really fun gadgets all along. The Q sequence, always a highlight, you know, and uh, do try and bring it back in one piece this time, Bond. I mean, I get why this is the car. It's not my favorite of the Bond cars, but in terms of the way it's used in the film, I think it's maybe the best. And, and I think it has to do with the fact that the gadgets are kind of understated when you think of them in the grander context. I mean, these are simple gadgets like an oil slick, you know, bulletproof glass and an ejector seat. Like the ejector seat is maybe the most wild thing this car has and, and Bond appropriately reacts to that. Like, you know, you got to be joking. So I think that that's why this car lasts as as the number one most loved Bond car is that it's it's all style and the gadgets aren't silly. Yeah, it's maybe the most practical Bond car in the in the whole franchise. Did I read this correctly that this is the first time like a, a Ford Mustang was ever in a movie or like this version of the Ford Mustang? Because that's an iconic Mustang. I'm not a car guy, but you know, a lot of Fords in here as well. I notice. So I feel like now when when a company makes a deal with a movie, it's just those cars and it's really awkward sometimes that everyone like cool is driving the same brand. But you got a lot of cool different cars here. They even refer to his old Bentley in this as well. So big car movie. Maybe the guys at Too Fast, Too Forever should cover it. I believe in the in the novels, Bond drives a Bentley, which was the reference to that. You know, they wanted gotcha, to, gotcha. For, for people who had read the books, they wanted to at least acknowledge that he drove a Bentley. Ejecto Cito, cuz. That's all I got to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dan, and Dan, I really love his map room. I love that whole sequence. And here's something that never really hit me uh, until this screening is he basically wipes out organized crime in America. Goldfinger right. <laughs> does. His whole thing was like he got he got all the different mobs in America to smuggle different components that he needed to pull off his heist into America to Kentucky. So like you got the guys from Chicago smuggling stuff, the guys from the LA mob, the Vegas mob, the New York mob, like the Florida mob, like they're all there. And uh, he's gonna like, you know, make a deal where he's like, you can take your million or I'll give you 10 million tomorrow after I pull off this heist. And then he just murders all except for one of them who was like smart enough, apparently to just take the money and run, but then he gets crushed into a cube, right? Yes. <laughs> so, like, it doesn't really work out well for him either. But they took out everybody. Like, it just paved the way for someone like Christopher Walken's character to come along the line in, uh, you know, view to a kill and just take over the world or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just left the door. He left the door open wide. Like, uh, organized crime needs a new kingpin. Mike, 
Joey Saza, very jealous of this, what happens right now. Hashtag Godfather 3 episode. This is exactly like, uh, yeah, the uh, Atlantic City Massacre with the helicopter. <laughs> yeah, I, I love how um, all of these American gangsters are all playing really broad stereotypes. You know, it, it hit me in this rewatch. And not, and not well, and not well. <laughs> What are you talking about? They're all playing like gangsters from a far side comic, you know, like it's fine. It works for this movie, which as we sort of established, it sort of is the the beginning of Bond having fun with himself, you know, or the, you know, the, the, the filmmakers having fun with the property. But yeah, I, it hit me this time. I was like, man, these guys are all cartoon characters. And that's what sort of led me to the thinking that maybe James Bond is as well. Like maybe they're making more fun of him than we might have originally thought or um, at the time time thought it was cool like hey look how much fun he's having but now it kind of plays like they're maybe making a little fun of james bond sometimes to me you know like maybe that's just in reference to the times we live perhaps but uh it doesn't make the film any less enjoyable if anything i just love how these movies sort of change readings over time if anything mike quickly and i wanted to confirm this while you guys were talking and i did because i had a hunch about this and i meant to confirm it most of those mafioso guys are played by British actors. And you can kind of tell when they're doing like, yeah, you know, like sometimes they're slipping into different accents that are not necessarily that Italian-American accent. Jolly good, Goldfinger. <laughs> Including the main guy, uh, Bill Nagy's the actor who played, sorry, the main mobster, the one who gets put, uh, you know, crushed in the car. He's a British actor as well. So yeah, I mean, a little background on that scene and why they seem so like, cartoony it, it's it's that they're like pulling it off that because remember like you said dan sean connery's only acting in england and these are little bit parts so they're just just cast british actors and have them do accents we do their accents all the time right Oh, interesting. And, like, the guy who played Felix, like, he wasn't British, but he worked extensively in the UK. So, like, you know, he was there, I guess he was known by maybe the casting director or whoever knew him from British television or whatever. And um, they're like, hey, token American guy. <laughs> Felix doesn't have much of a personality yet. And I don't, I don't think that they really, even at his wedding, you're like, you're letting James Bond, like, kiss your wife on the mouth on, his, on your wedding day and, like, dance with her. And then... Um, um, you know, in the at one point he gets fed to sharks. So like it's they really never knew what to do with Felix in my book until um, until Jeffrey Wright really. And I really feel like when they bring Jeffrey Wright in, it, he's kind of trying to do more with that role than anyone's attempted before. And obviously my favorite, I think my favorite moment in one of almost all the James Bond movies is like when he's down on the uh, on the slab and the laser is is gonna cut him and everything like that's just so great had to mention it one last time before we start wrapping up one of the things i love most about that scene i mean it's so iconic and it's such a um, great visual moment i love that james talks his way out of this as opposed to relying on some kind of luck i think it would have really cheapened this moment like in, in a future james bond film i could definitely see some sort of like incredible deus ex machina would get him out of that situation right i mean they, they pretty much did that in specter right like his specter moment involved the, you know the watch he was fortunate enough to have that watch but not that i'm complaining about that because that's definitely uh sort of a hallmark for the franchise in general i think what i like about the laser scene here is that it breaks from that you know it plays out like where james legitimately gets himself out of that situation yeah it's way tense too like it you know it's playing for the tension and trying to get your heart racing and and all that kind of stuff and i think it's really good and it helps show that the character is like quick thinking 
all that kind of stuff, like knows how to, what to say and how to say it to get himself safe and all that. My favorite parody of this is in The Simpsons, where something like what you're talking about happens is like Homer goes to work for this guy who turns out to kind of be a Bond villain and he's got like James Bond tied up with the laser and uh, James Bond like slips a coin out of his cuff or he like uncuffs a cuff link and he like flicks it with his finger and it splits the laser and it cuts him loose and then Homer tackles him when he's running away. (laughs) Just great. All right. Well, do you guys have anything else you'd like to say about Goldfinger before we wrap it up here and before we get to the best part, which is plugs? All I got to say is that, again, this is the Bond, the Sean Connery Bond film that if someone's maybe never seen a Bond film before and they're not, you know, they're not going to do them all in order. Like this might be a good introduction to this era of Bond because it has so so much cool stuff, so much Mm -hmm. iconic stuff, Um, even the uh, martini lines in this and, you know, everything's good. I love it. Yeah, you really, for the most part, don't need to watch these in any particular order. There's there there'll be a stretch of like three or two or three that try to connect some dots and stuff like that. But for the most part, I think you could kind of they're mostly solo adventures. Dan, anything you'd like to add before we wrap it up? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Brian. I think if if somebody has never seen a James Bond film before this is a great starting point uh as we've established it has it's sort of like the beginning of what became all of the franchise hallmarks everything from the one-liners to the silly gadgets you know the bond girls like it's got everything that you would think of i don't think it's necessarily the best spy movie in the franchise i think that there are definitely better examples of that even sean connery had a better example of that i think from russia with love is better in terms of being a spy movie. So if that's more your speed, I think maybe start there. But if you're familiar with James Bond at all and sort of the inherent goofiness, this is a great place to start. This is, I think, my number three overall in terms of my, you know, James Bond ranking. You know, I I only rank this. I rank this behind Skyfall and Casino Royale. I think it's, it's one of the strongest entries. Yeah. Wow, wow. Two Daniel Craigs. I think this is up there. This is definitely like top five for me. Uh, You know, I really love The Living Daylights. I think that's my favorite. Shout out Timothy Dalton. (laughs) This might be my favorite Sean Connery, but I agree with you as far as like not the best spy movie in his uh, in his run either or stuff. I'm very partial to Live and Let Die. I like that one a lot. Um, Generally, the first one, when a guy comes in, they knock it out of the park. Casino Royale, amazing. So... On Her Majesty's Secret Service is incredibly underrated. Yeah, why? You're expecting the other guy? We can, maybe we can maybe touch on that if you do, if you want to just get Lazenby in there, even though it's not a part three. Well, what I do, I do for Queen and Country. I go to bat for that movie quite a bit. It's in my top five all time. That's a good one. That's 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 definitely up there as well. Like I said, the, I think aside from Sean Connery, you can't go wrong with the first of everybody's, and in George's case, yep. his only one. So <laughs> put it there. All right. So Brian, aside from when you're the unofficial co-host of this show, where can other people find you out there on the internet? Um, first, I, I did want to say quickly, I got a alert on my phone while we were recording, and it is James Bond related and something that you enjoy to Mike as we've talked Shazam on my show High School Slumber Party but uh copyright law yes we did we talked a lot of copyright law on that episode but Pierce Bronson has just been announced joining the Black Adam film as a character named Dr. Fate so little weird synergy there right Hmm, interesting. What's cool is Timothy Dalton plays the chief on Doom Patrol. So maybe they'll cross in the DC multiverse one day. (laughs) But I officially 
host a podcast called High School Slumber Party. Mike, you're on all the time. Dan, you've been on as well. Dan, I'm congratulating you because you have the high watermark for most listened to episode of 2020, which was our Lost Boys episode. Wow. Still gets listens. People love the Lost Boys. What can I say? If I had to guess, I would have expected Fast Times at Ridgemont High because I know how how much... Just people love that movie. But yeah, I guess I can't be too surprised about The Lost Boys either. That's awesome. Guys, check out High School Slumber Party on the Cage Club Podcast Network because both these guys have been awesome on that show. Um, I don't know when you're releasing this, Mike, but uh, we just did a Sean Connery movie. We just recorded one, so it's related. It's not a Bond film. It is Finding Forrester. We talked for a long time about Finding Forrester. <laughs> you're the man now, dog. <laughs> we also talk a long time just about like indie 90s movies oh, and I stuff. I love when the conversation goes in different places. And uh, I know, Mike, you're going to be helping me with a project. A project involving two friends with the same first name. Can I just say that this is a little dream of mine <laughs> come true? <laughs> That I've dreamed of doing. (laughs) And Dan, it's related to you because you covered the movie where these two friends met on my podcast and I already mentioned. So you guys can fill in the gaps about what teenage friends of the 80s were covering. It's the Corys. It's the Corys. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be talking a lot of Corys movies going uh, forward and a lot of fun stuff there and i of course host another podcast called ps i love hoffman that one's finishing its second run really but check out those old episodes with kyle reinfried and myself and yeah i mean that's what i have going on uh, follow high school slumber party on twitter that's me i don't have my own twitter so awesome excellent dan cologne what's going on out there on the internets well anybody could find me on twitter at Dan Cologne on Letterboxd at Dan Cologne. And as you already uh, stated at the top of the show, Mike, we host a show called The Monsters That Made Us, where we uh, celebrate all of the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios classic monster series. So far, we have gotten as far as The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, We release these one month at a time, and we will go through all of the original 31 original films. So check those out, and that's a lot of fun. And I think that is it for me. I can't think uh, of anything else I want to promote. No doubt. And yeah, hopefully this James Bond series will continue possibly throughout the year. Like, this is the official the third James Bond movie ever made, but going forward, I'd like to do the third movie of every new actor who steps into the role if they've gotten to a third movie. But other than that, guys, I guess I'll see you later. And remember to keep your martini shaken, not stirred.
that's going to do it for another spy-filled episode of Third Time's a Charm. Gotta thank my guests, or rather co-hosts, or rather, rather, my team of double-O agents that helped make it possible. The iconic Brian Late Night Rodriguez of High School Slumber Party, and the invisible Dan Cologne of The Monsters That Made Us. Thanks again, guys, for dropping by, and who knows, perhaps we will meet again to discuss some Roger Moore in the very near future. For all things Third Time's a Charm, go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and get the show wherever else podcasts are available, Spotify, etc., etc. Write me at T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me. That's three at cageclub.me. Don't forget to check out all the other great shows on the network at cageclub.me, all the shows that I'm on. There are two new episodes of Cage Club Prime with Joey and myself this year already, so check those shows out. I'm going to be guesting up on Brian's show a lot more this year, and also, yeah, please check out The Monsters That Made Us. That is the final Friday of every month where Dan Colon and I discuss the history and origins of the Universal Monster movies. So check that out as well. And I guess, you know, until Until next time. Three, that's the magic number. Three, it is. It's the magic number. Three, Three, they stubbing me, and that's the magic number. What does it all mean?